All right, guys, if y'all would, uh, would please turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, and our text is going to be verses 51 through verse 60. So starting in verse 51 through the rest of the chapter. And before we read the text, just a, by way of disclaimer, so as Blake said, we'll start our Titus study next week. Um, and y'all probably all know our hearts, you've heard it talked about before, but we, we, we are faithfully committed to expository preaching. Um, there's a lot of wonderful rules and merits behind that and reasons for that. I also think, as we've talked about, I think it's protection to anyone preaching and being um, given the, the responsibility to preach the Word, proclaim the Word, because... We've probably all sat in church before and felt like we were being preached at. And if we're preaching topical sermons, that can sometimes happen because preachers are sinful men just like everyone else. So I want to say all that to say, if you feel the reason this sermon has been written is because it was convicting to me. So I'm preaching it myself. If you feel convicted, that's your problem. So it wasn't directed at you or meant for you. This was meant for me very much, I promise. Um, so let me read the text. Um, Real quickly, just setting up the context, this is the early part of Acts. The disciples obviously are going out. The apostles have just chosen in chapter 6 the seven first possibly deacons, Stephen of, one of, was, uh, of whom was one. Um, Stephen was actually seized and taken before the leaders because he was actually doing so many wonderful things. It says he was powerful, he was full of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 6, he is seized he is, they, much like Christ, they bring up false witnesses to say, get up there and just accuse him. Say, say, say these things. Say that he's talking, stirring up crowds. He's preaching against the law, all of these things. Which brings us to chapter 7. And starting in the very beginning of chapter 7, verse 1, Stephen basically addresses them. Um, they ask him, are these things true? They said, this man never ceases to speak. In the end of verse chapter 6, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the bigger, bigger part of the chapter 7 is him giving a completely accurate... <laughs> testimony of everything that's happened through the, the history up until now, up until the coming of Christ. And we'll pick up in verse 51 now. So he's given this uh, recounting of things, quoted scripture and gone all the way up to Christ. And in verse 51, he breaks away from the recounting that he has given them and addresses them starting in 51 as such. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And God, I um, thank you for just the, the opportunity and the privilege to study it and to preach it, Lord. And I pray that you would let your word flow through me, Lord. Forgive me for selfish ambition, for pride, Lord. And just... Keep me from me, Lord, and let your Spirit speak through me and let the Word be proclaimed well, rightly, faithfully, and for your glory and yours alone, God. Forgive me of my sins. Help us to, Lord, just sit gazing at Christ now, Lord, and give you glory and be changed more into His image, Lord, and leave looking more like Him, God. Keep us now from sin, from distraction. Fix our eyes on you. Forgive us of our sins, please, in Christ's name. Amen. So... 
the, the, the reason and, and what started this, I said I was preaching it myself. For years and years, I've always, if we remember the story, the, uh, the Luke's accounting of Jesus' crucifixion, um, and I went back and looked. I do believe Luke is the only author, gospel writer, who um, accounts of that. But does anybody remember what Jesus prayed for the, those nailing him to the cross? Forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them. So I thought, man, Jesus prayed for forgiveness. He used some of his last words to ask forgiveness for the people unjustly murdering him. And I thought, that's okay. That was the God side. That was the 100% God of Jesus. So I, I couldn't dare be expected to be like that. I can get by with that. This text ruins that theory for me because here we have a sinful man saved by grace and dwelt with the Holy Spirit doing exactly the same thing Christ did, being murdered by sinful men praying for their forgiveness. Somebody pulls in front of me and goes too slow. I'm ready to run them off the road and watch their children starve because they've wronged me. And here we see Stephen praying for the people who are murdering him. So we've got three points for us as we start through this. Um, the first one is, this is unfortunately for us as fallen, struggling people saved by grace, this is the way we are commanded to love others. I would say even, but more so especially those that are the most difficult for us to love. And again, we look at Stephen's words in verse 60. He says, falling to his knees, falling to his knees as he is perishing, as he is dying, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. If we were to look at Christ's words to us, as I said, we are commanded this way. Christ says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, you have, heard it, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That sounds easy enough, but I say to you, Christ said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect scares me to death because, again, this is not a suggestion. This is a command from Christ who gave Himself to save us, to redeem us from our lostness, from our fallenness. Um, if we look at also um, Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6, a parallel accounting of this, but it's, He adds some verbiage to it, or Luke records some additional verbiage. It says, "...but I say to you who hear, love your enemies." Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other cheek also. And from, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful." Christ's example is perfect. It's, it's absolutely perfect. And we're told to be merciful unto others as God has been merciful to, uh, unto us. And we'll talk more about that in our last point. But again, this is the stuff as we started, as I started to study this text and saw this, that, that honestly scares me to death because this is, again, stuff that when we're, we're talking about legitimate wrongs. I mean, Stephen... Stephen Stephen isn't being retaliated against. Stephen has in this act, in this account, he was not a perfect man, obviously, but he was not guilty in the crime he was being punished for. And he's praying just like Christ did. In Luke, we already referenced this, but in Luke 6, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 23, we see Christ's perfect example. While he's being crucified, Jesus says, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them. 
for they do not for they know not what they do and they cast lots to divide his garments as he was being nailed to the cross for the sins of possibly potentially the very men crucifying him he's praying for them he's praying for them and again it was always easy for me to excuse myself from loving someone like that thinking how could I ever pray for someone that's actually beating me or but but that was again Christ I could excuse myself yeah I'm supposed to be like Christ but I'm never going to be perfectly like Christ so this will be something I just never get right but we see by the power of the Holy Spirit Stephen got it right so that's where the heart for this was of how how in the world is that possible how in the world could a man like each one of us how could that be possible for us to be that wrongly treated and respond that rightly? In Romans, again, building the case again, if we look back off of what Luke said, be merciful unto others as the Father is merciful unto us. So we need to examine a little bit more before we get into the practical application, how merciful is God to us? If i got to be as merciful as God is to me, I need to understand God's mercy to me first. In Romans 5, verses 6 through 10, Paul writes, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For no one, oh, I'm sorry, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though, for, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Christ died for the ungodly, the very opposite of Him, of His godliness, of His righteousness. He died for the ungodly. He showed His love in that while, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God Himself gave His only Son as a blood ransom for His enemies, for the people that had rejected Him. I think it was R.C. Sproul that called sin cosmic treason against God. We have betrayed our Creator. And I, I heard a pastor one time say, because he was interacting with the question, well, why would God allow sin in the first place? And I, I mean, amen, that's a great question. Why not just keep everything perfect? It seems better to me. And he used this text to answer it. He said, God is so loving. His love is so deep. His love was not fully displayed on lovely creatures. God's love is so deep in order for it to be fully demonstrated, fully glorified and bring Him the full revelation of who He is as a loving God. It must be displayed on something completely unlovable. It had to be displayed on something that completely had no merit in itself to merit love. We all, we, we all do things for one another that merit warm affections. We, we, we should be striving to make our loved ones easier for them to love us. Now, we obviously always don't always do that, but that should be the goal. But it says God's love is so deep that He, just, he, he chose to show it while we were still sinners, while we were rebels, while we were traitors, while we were in constant rebellion. This love is the core and the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's the love that we are called to mimic and to share with the world around us. And as Phil was praying, that's our hope. That's why we're here, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel simply proclaimed is that holy God created us in His image to be like Him. And we failed and transgressed. And unfortunately, not one of us is capable to understand the depths of how fallen we were because I said this to the guys at basketball doing, I said it would like, be like trying to explain to a fish what it is to exist without water. All of us, like Phil said, we're all, if we're in Christ, we have new hearts, we're new creations, but we all look the same. Why? Because we're still in the same physical body. We still, if Paul is writing Romans 7 and says, wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? We ain't been freed from it yet. We're still struggling with this sin. And God said, I am going to show my love and mercy by sending my own son as a blood ransom to this world to live as you're supposed to live. And the coolest thing, the wages of sin is death. Jesus had no sin. He had no, death had no claim on him. He voluntarily gave his life, laid it down willingly, submissively like a lamb being led to the slaughter as a payment, as, a, as, as an atoning sacrifice 
for all that would call upon His name. And praise God, the sacrifice was sufficient. God raised him in newness, or raised him back to physical life. He appeared to many. He seated at the right hand of God. Even as it says here in Acts chapter seven, it's one of our catechisms we talked with the kids talk, talked with the kids about when they were young. Where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of God, interceding for His people. And Stephen, we see here in the text, just another reference. He sees Him at the right hand of God. So the gospel. I would submit respectfully, and, and this feel free to disagree, but I would submit that this type of love that we see from Stephen is impossible for an unbeliever. I would submit that it takes a heart that has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ to have any hope at all of loving like this. It's such a supernatural love. It is a, it's, it, it's such a deep love. It's a godly love capital G godly love that I believe has to be facilitated and carried out by the Holy Spirit. So um, we must first know the gospel, value the gospel, have been saved by the gospel. Um, the next point here that we'll discuss is this type of love, and, and this one, Phil, I thought about you several times writing the, these points, but it says this type of love does not endorse sinful living or pass approval for unrepentant lifestyles, but rather calls them to account. And we've, if we look back in our text here, verses 51 through 53, I don't know, again, everything he said was right, but he, he did not hold anything back here in his, when he broke from the, the, the historical account that he had given them, and he breaks to addressing them, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears. And Blake and Phil both are much more historians than I am, but even like I picked up on that, the uncircumcised in heart, I don't know that he could have said anything more insulting to them at that point. Like that, circumcision was a big deal to them. And you're saying this to the elders and to the leaders and the Jewish leaders, and he's calling them a stiff-necked, uncircumcised people. You're basically saying you're Gentiles. <laughs> uncircumcised um, in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, if that didn't hurt them bad enough, now he's going to bring their, their family into it. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed, so they persecuted them. They were bad. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Uh, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. We could spend a, lo a lot more time on how deep that would have cut the group that hit his audience. I mean, I, I don't know what to compare it to, how hurtful or upsetting that was, but we see clearly their response. I mean, they, it says they um, were enraged, they ground their teeth, they stopped their ears. They did not want to hear what Stephen was saying. But it is very important for us to acknowledge the Stephen that prays what he pray, prayed in verse 60 is, is calling him boldly, clearly, factually, specifically addressing the sins and the states of their hearts. He holds, I, I don't know what he held back. He could have, I'm sure, said more, but it, that seems as, as, as pretty pointed as, as I could imagine it being um, to the groupies that he, he is addressing. If we also want to look at another example of this, if we were to look at John 4, if you have your Bibles and you want to look at John 4, chapter, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, this is Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And if we remember that story, Jesus is sitting by the well, the woman's come to draw the water, and we pick up in verse uh, 13, and Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty, or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus brings the glaring sin in the woman's life into the spotlight of their conversation. His love led him to guide her to repentance of her sin that she might confess it and be forgiven. I've thought about this so many times because 
He could have said he could have said so many things that I would have said. Oh, you're doing. Look for something. Look for the good. You you do a great job. I'm sure your family appreciates you bringing the water home to him. You you know you're faithful in doing this. He could have complimented her, but John Piper, talking about this, said Jesus knew the quickest way to the heart is through a wound, and he said he addressed what was lacking in this woman. That was his call to repentance. It was. This woman will be called to confession if I address what it is that's killing her so that she can be saved, leading her to confession. Because as we know from 1 John um, 1, He is faithful if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Jesus called her to confessions. Go get your husband. And the, the next verse after that, if I kept reading, if you have your Bibles, she says she perceived that He was a prophet. She knew. I mean, Jesus wasn't guessing, obviously, and she clearly responded well with humility with, sir, I don't have a husband. I mean, she, she could have said, okay, I'll be back and get I thought about that too. I was like, she could have said, okay, wait right here, I'll be back. And then said, I'm never going to talk to that guy again. He, I, I don't want him to know what I'm really like. But she laid down her pride. She was humble in just telling him, sir, I don't have a husband. So again, we see Jesus calling her to that. Um, I love that Jesus' response in verse 16 is in response to her request in verse 15. She says, she asks him for living water, and he says, go get your husband. And I thought, I thought if I'm her in that, that seems odd. I ask you for some water. Why do you care if I, I just want the water? Give me the water. We must be aware that in order to love the unlovable, we must first encounter them. And... The point that we'll talk about in the last point here is that we have to be prepared for when we ask God to teach us things, how He's going to teach us and what that may mean. This woman thought she was asking for living water so she didn't have to come back, and Jesus asked her to go get her husband that she didn't have. Jesus was granting her living water, but it seems at first like He, complete, like he just ignored her and went to another topic. Jesus was giving her the living water by asking her, go get your husband, by calling her to repentance for the very sin that she was holding on to. The other thing that we, we have to think about if we're loving like Stephen loved here is we have to be aware of the fact that it is evil to call good evil and evil good. Um, in let's see, Isaiah chapter 5, <laughs> verse 20, Isaiah writes, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It is an evil thing, an evil thing to tell someone they're doing a good job when they're headed down the wrong path. I can't think of anything more cruel if we, and it's an easy analogy when we would all shake our heads and, and say we don't, and I'll raise both hands and say I'm the most guilty. Phil, I've told Phil, Elizabeth knows, like, I, I'm embarrassed of how unfaithful I am in sharing the gospel with lost people. I mean, confessionally, I say that to y'all because we would all say, if we were standing right here and there was an elderly person standing in the highway and we saw a truck coming at them, everybody would get up, we'd race to run and get them out of the road. But we watch people. I'm watch. I watch people stand in the highway on the way to hell every day, and we don't share the gospel with them. I don't share the gospel with them. I don't love as I should. There is nothing loving about passing approval on unrepentant sin in someone's life in order to avoid an uncomfortable conversation, or even due to the fear of earthly consequences. Stephen was bold with the crowd, and I would speculate fairly confidently that he had a pretty good idea what he was about to say was going to upset them, and he said it anyway. And I don't, again, if none of us know what heaven's going to be like, but if I ever had a chance to, I, I wonder if Stephen held anything back. Again, I can't imagine what he could have said more to upset them, but he didn't hold anything back because he called them to account. He pointed out what they were doing wrong. It is a loving thing to lovingly, humbly, carefully, gently calling someone to repentance. Jesus didn't call the woman at the well names. He didn't call her, call her a harlot or belittle her, but he pointed out what she needed to confess. St Stephen, everything he said was right. It was hard to hear because they were the, the, the more sinful we are, 
being called to account is going to be harder. <laughs> if, I, if, we, if we do something that's out of character and our spouse comes to us and says, sweetie, I, are you okay? Like that, that was just, that wasn't like you. If it's not like us, then it's a little bit easier to hear because we can say, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. I was having a bad day. Or I was upset. Or I was frustrated about this. But the farther we go down the path of sin, the harder it's going to hit us if we're ever, when we're called back to account. We should keep short accounts with God. We don't want to get too far down the path where someone calling us to repentance is going to look like what Stephen had to say to this crowd. Um, so we, we, we cannot... There's, there's so much written now, and, and this is where I get off, and Elizabeth probably gets tired of hearing me rant because I, I say, look, this is what... The devil is never going to confess Christians. You shouldn't be loving. So if... if Thinking about like the screw tape letters C.S. Lewis wrote, you know, where it's the demon and he's counseling his younger demon um, on how to make this Christian stumble. So I was thinking like, if I was sitting at Satan's round table trying to plot against how to teach Christians to be unloving, you're not going to convince them to be unloving. So what you have to do is you have to trick them what love is. You have to counterfeit love. Well, God is love. Well, we're never going to convince them not to love. But what we can do is deceive them about what love really is. We can convince them that love wins, that God's too loving to ever send someone to hell, that God is too loving to say something hard to somebody. That's not what Stephen did. That's not what Christ did. Christ didn't. He called people to repentance so that they could be saved. The confession comes before the mercy is applied, before all of the grace is poured out on them. And that's what we see. Um, in Proverbs, there's the author here has very, very strong words um, from Solomon about how the Lord views those who justify the wicked and or condemn the righteous. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15, it says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Are we justifying the wicked? Do we condemn the righteous? Stephen didn't do that. Stephen condemned the unrighteous and called them to repentance. Now, a couple of thoughts and notes on this point is, first of all, we must always be first, foremost, and last to this. In order for us to call someone to loving repentance, we must first always be examining ourselves to see that we are clearly seeing a sinful issue in another person's life. We all know it. We've all read it. But I want to read it just by way of reminder. Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5. Forgive me, I didn't have that one on my list. But Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5. Jesus says, talking to them, He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We first must be examining ourselves if we are going to have any level of accuracy. I love how Jesus says that, so that you can clearly see to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And, and I don't know if y'all are like, like me, but I do think I, I work in analogies. It helps me to visualize things, and I thought about that Jesus is saying that. I thought, if I, had, if I was working outside and I got some, something in my eye and I'm messing with it, and I said, hey, Phil, will you come help get this out? And Phil walks over and he's got a two-by-four sticking out of his eye. And he's like, yeah, I'll help you. And he's smacking me around. He can't see. He's got his head turned. I wouldn't let him near me. But that's how we are when we run in to tell somebody they've done something wrong and I've got secret sin that I'm hiding. I've got, you know, I, I'm not my marriage is not right or I'm not treating my kids the way I am or I'm not doing right by my employer or whatever sin I may be holding on to, pride, lust, love of money, whatever it is, if we are not constantly examining ourselves, we cannot love like Stephen loved in this text. We have first and foremost always, it's got to be a practice. If I'm going to call a brother or sister to account or address something with them, I have got to be looking inside saying, Lord, please show me what's stuck in mine and help me get it out because I want to lovingly help this brother or sister. I don't want to go to them self-righteous, puffed up, and smack them around with the plank that's in my own eye. Um, the other thing is, and this is the hard part, I think we have to acknowledge that this type of love will never, unfortunately, be easy, at least at first. We're not called, though, to an easy love. 
We started this by going through the gospel. The love that God shows, the real, the biblical love that God displays was not an easy love. One of my favorite, he was an 80s um, Christian artist. Now he's a pastor, Steve Camp. And I heard him say, it is, it is a free gift. It is not a cheap gift. It is not a cheap love that we receive. It's a free gift because of God's grace, but it is not cheap. Christ paid dearly for the love that we experience. So <laughs> we're not called to an easy love. If we're called to love like that, we've got to acknowledge right on the front end, it's, never going to be, it's not going to be easy to love like this. It ain't going to be easy to love people like this that are in, in our lives. And then when we get to the enemy section of it, it's, <laughs> it's real hard. Um, I don't think she'll be upset with me for saying this, but our spouses are the people who we're supposed to love them the most in the world. Elizabeth and I, I don't, no one's ever made me madder than Elizabeth. No one's also ever made me feel more loved. And I bet she'd, I hope she'd say the same at least about more loved by me. And that's the person I'm supposed to love the most. So if, if I struggle to love her the way I'm supposed to, how am I going to struggle? How am I going to love people that don't deserve it? That do nothing to merit my affections. That do nothing to bless me and love me. It's not going to be an easy love. It never will be. So that brings us to the, the last point, and it's the, the longer one for application. And what I want us to look at is, again, to first, what I want to take from this is how can we hope to love like this? In order to love like this, we first have to, that's what we've try, I've tried to discuss here, is what type of love we're talking about. A godly love, a sacrificial, gospel-centered love. A love that took Christ to the cross. A love that let God the Father watch His own Son die for sinful people. Not for good people, for sinful people. Christ didn't die for one good person. Not one. He died for a mess of wretched reprobate, just, or just destined for hell and God's wrath. Not one good person did Christ die for. There was one good person, and He died for a mess of messed up people. So that's the kind of love that we're talking about. How in the world can we ever hope to pull that off? I would submit the only way that we, the only hope we have of ever for a moment on this side of heaven loving as Christ and Stephen love is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, A, and B, to have our eyes fixed on Christ. We look at verses 55 through 56 of our text. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. First and foremost, to love as Christ, we must be in Christ and we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. I do believe, again, by way, it's, it's not clearly stated in Scripture, but I submit it to you all for consideration. I think it is impossible for an, a non-regenerate heart to love like Christ. I think we have to have our hearts changed by the love of Christ if we ever hope to love like Christ. Now, this is, we will end with encouragement, but to me, this is the, the discouraging parts. <laughs> if we ask God, so we leave out of here and we think, okay, Lord, I hear, I want to love like you. Help me love like you. Well, here's the bad news. If we ask God to grow us in this type of love, we best darn well be prepared for what that entails. If we want to love the unlovable, guess what? That means we have to have encounters with the unlovable. We're going to have people... We're going to have people mistreat us if we ask God for these things. So I thought about this because as, as you all hear me preach more, this is what Blake, you get a lot of deep theological quotes. You hear who he's been reading. Phil talks about the history and Phil loves the different word studies. This is what you're going to get from me. Anybody seen the movie Karate Kid, the original Karate Kid? <laughs> Y'all going to get Karate Kid examples from me. <laughs> so, has everybody seen that, the original one? Okay, I need, I need some people to have heard that or seen it to, to get this. But So, we leave here and bow our heads, Lord, help me to unlove the unlovable. What happened when Daniel, he was getting bullied, he was getting beat up, and he goes to this wise old karate teacher and says, teach me karate. We all remember that? He said, okay, be here tomorrow, we'll start. He got there the next day and handed him a sponge and a wash bucket. Wash my cars. 
And he started questioning. He said, nope, no questions asked. Wash my cars. Next day, comes back, sand my deck. Next, come paint my fence. Next day or last day, several days later, he comes there. He's not even there. He says, I've gone fishing. Paint my entire house. And if you remember that scene, he comes back. Mr. Miyagi comes back. Daniel's mad. He's had it. He's sore. He's hurting. He cusses Mr. Miyagi. Goes off on him. Lays into him. Mr. Miyagi turns around to strike him, and Daniel blocks it. And then he does several more, and they exchange, have this karate exchange, and Daniel blocks every one of Mr. Miyagi's punches, and he kind of steps back, and Mr. Miyagi bows and says, come back tomorrow. And Daniel walks around, turns around and walks home looking at his hands in awe. He had been asking to be taught something, but he did not receive the teaching the way he thought it would come. So the scary part for us, if we ask, Lord, give me patience, and please be quick doing it. <laughs> Help me to love the unlovable. Be careful praying stuff like that because it means we're going to be exposed to the unlovable. If we pray to have the opportunity to love those that don't deserve our love, we're going to have to, God, God may just answer that by bringing unlovable people into our paths. So let's be prepared that that's probably going to happen if we pray this prayer. And again, if we look in verse 55 and 56, in order to begin to love our enemies, so we ask the Lord for these opportunities. And as He starts to give them, and I would submit maybe we should all pray for each other to have the wisdom to identify them so we can take a step back and say, okay, Lord, here's my chance. Help me not to blow it. Blow it. Um, you've clearly brought this unlovable person into my life to teach me something, so help me to learn and not be pig-headed. Or as Elizabeth and I tell her, I was like, I'm just learning to learn at this point. I'm just trying to be able to learn. So in order to begin to love our enemies and those that persecute us, or just plain unlovable people, as we are clearly called and commanded to do, we must not focus on them, but rather on God. We must depend on the love that He has shown for us to serve us as, to serve as fuel for us to love those who have wronged us. As much pain as someone has, as much as someone has pain as may have caused us, they have not yet wronged us. One percent, one measurable amount have we been offended as much offense as we've caused God. And as we read in Luke, we are to be merciful unto others as God has been merciful unto us. No matter if we have treated someone in a, in a, in a one particular relationship, less for argument's sake, say we have been perfect. By God's grace, in our interactions with this one person, we have never sinned just in that relationship for argument's sake, and they are nothing but awful to us. That still is nowhere comparable to the level of difference in the gap between our offenses against holy God. Because even if, we're, even if we're innocent in an interaction with one person, we're still not innocent people. We're still sinful people. God is infinitely holy, 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 and our sins against Him are infinitely offensive. We, have, we will never experience such um, pain or wrongdoing as God has endured from us. We have rejected a perfectly holy lovely, loving, kind Creator. And yet He has chosen to show His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We've offended Him eternally, and He has eternally loved us, those of, those, those of us that are His in Christ. So practically speaking, if again, if we look back and how do we take application from this, how do we begin to hope to love like Stephen? must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And secondly, we must have our eyes fixed firmly on Christ. Let's look again at verse 55 and 56. It says, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I submit Stephen saw God in such a way, saw Christ in such a way, it overwhelmed, it, it made what he was suffering. I look at this as somebody who wants to be healthy, who wants to be physically not sick, who wants to be able to do the things I want to do. And I look at this, this is, this is terrible. I couldn't get past getting beat to death. Stephen was so overwhelmed by the glory of God that he was seeing what was happening to him. I would submit to some degree. I'm not saying it didn't hurt, but I'm saying... He was seeing the glory of God displayed in such a way it, it made what was happening to him seem like nothing. It was, he was so overwhelmed by God's grace and God's glory and seeing Christ, it, it, it made what was happening to him in his physical body not matter, clearly, for him to be able to pray like this. 
practically speaking, um, one of the things that I have found the most helpful to me in doing this is when you have an inter- when I have an interaction with somebody who upsets me, and again, maybe somebody who is truly upsetting, uh, who is truly upsetting, is if you look at the person <laughs> and try to muster up feelings of love, of mercy, of this, I think it's going to be extremely difficult, possibly impossible. I believe what we have to focus on practically is helps me to find more grace and forgiveness for someone who has wronged me when I think about how much grace and forgiveness that I need from God. And I think about this in the past week. I was dealing with somebody, a very, very difficult person at work. And I thought, I was like, you know, it was just really hard for me to even pray for him. And then I thought about some things I had done wrong that week. And I was like, Lord, I hope you'll forgive me and not be too hard on me. When we think about the grace that we want from God, it makes it easier for us to think, okay, Lord, I want you to be merciful to me now, and I'm supposed to be merciful like you, so I'm going to be merciful to this person because I've got a lot less to put up with from them than you do from me. (laughs) I'm driving you far more crazy than they're driving me, so I'm going to try to be merciful. I'm going to try because I'm banking on your mercy. I'm banking on your grace. I need your grace for the sins that I have committed and continue to commit. As Phil talked about in the confession time, I wish I stopped sinning, but I'm going to sin before... I, I, I get out of this place. I need God's grace. And we're called to be merciful and forgiving unto others. And fill the disciples' prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We've, if we're going to ask that for God, we've got to be willing to forgive like that. So we have to look for ways to, to apply that grace and that mercy to others. And I find it easier to pray for God's grace for others when I'm pleading for His grace for me, for my life. It's easy for me when I screw up or make a bad decision. I'm like, Lord, okay, I get it. I see I did wrong. I'd really, please just be easy with me on this. And now help me to be easy with this other person that's driving me crazy. So practically speaking, it helps me to find grace and forgiveness for people when I think about the grace and forgiveness that I experience from God on an hourly basis. Also, as a practical step towards praying for those that persecute us, as Stephen did for those that were while they were stoning him, is to remind ourselves of the fact that someone likely prayed for each and every one of us while we were living lost and rebelliously. Phil, you said you were raised in the church, you were set under the gospel. I bet you had people praying for you. My mom prayed for me and Jessica probably every day of her life. No matter what she was going on, no matter what she was going through, she probably prayed for us to be saved. While I was living, as we sang that song, All I Have is Christ, while I ran my hellbound race, we had people praying for us. So why not hang on to that and let's pray for other people? That their hellbound race may be causing grief on us. It may be driving us crazy. But let's pray for them because somebody prayed for us. Somebody prayed for us. God certainly um, did not wait for something meritorious to be done by us. As we're going to go through Titus in Titus 3, 4-7. through But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Let us commit to pray for those around us that need grace like we once did, and by the way, still do. We, we've been saved by grace through faith. We don't need any less grace today than we needed the day our hearts were changed. We need God's sustaining, amazing, eternal grace. On the same note, um, and we'll look at one last example from Scripture, um, if we flip over to Matthew, I think I printed this, didn't I? Yeah. Oh, shoot, I didn't. Um, flip over, if you would, real quickly to Matthew 14. Matthew 14, starting in verse 28. Okay. So, Matthew 14, verse 28. There's a storm at sea. The disciples are on, in their boat on the water. Um, and picking up in verse... I'm sorry, I'm going to pick up in verse 25. It says, And in the fourth watch of the night, He came to them, Christ. He came to them, the disciples, walking on the sea. 
But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So as one final example, in verse, picking up in verse 28, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. If we look at this when things happened, the timeline as Peter was walking, Peter was safe walking on water in a storm. Now again, it's not... It's important to look at this, to visualize these things, because again, if we look, it says in verse 32, the wind ceased. When Peter stepped out of the boat, it wasn't like he was stepping onto a calm lake with the sun setting. He was stepping out of a boat onto water in a storm. Makes no logical sense other than trusting in the power of Christ to protect and preserve you. And it was working. Peter was walking on the water when while he was fixed on Christ, while he was looking at Christ. But then we see here it starts to go, come off the rails fairly quickly because after he was walking on the water, he saw the wind and he was afraid. His focus shifted from Christ to the surrounding things, to the winds, to the storms, to the struggles, to, what, to the danger around him. He took his eyes off of Christ and became more attentive to the storm around him. And he began to sink. His, when his focus shifted to the, from Christ to the storms around him, he began to sink. And we, if we notice, his circumstances had not changed. That's the importance of looking that the wind didn't cease until they were both back in the boat. His circumstances had not changed, but rather only what he was focused on. He was no less walking on water than when he first stepped out of the boat. He had only began, he had only began to sink when he began to fear the winds instead of the one controlling them. Even then, Christ was gracious to deliver him again. We think about Peter. Peter was forgiven. He stepped out, doubted God, sank, and Jesus picked him up, put him back in the boat, corrected him, restored him. That kind of ongoing, merciful, patient, Christ-like love is what we have to count on and what we have to look to as our example, as our um, fuel for loving like this. I think about, you know, again, how to do these things. And when we read through the Old Testament, you see them setting up monuments and things and, and going through this, this book that Phil, uh, that Phil and Blake brought, The Anxious for Nothing. And MacArthur writes in there, you know, talking about as we worry about things. He said it helps. He said when God answers a prayer, when God shows us His faithfulness, write it down. Go back and read those things. We, we, we are so quick to forget God's faithfulness when one thing goes wrong. We are so quick to be like Peter who is walking on water and getting close. The closer he was getting to Christ is when he got more scared. How messed up are we? Like you... We need grace, and we need to keep our eyes firmly fixed on Christ. Because I will submit, as hopeless of a venture as it is, as to walk on water without divine intervention and Christ-centered focus, so is loving an unlovable person, and much more so someone that would persecute us. It's no less difficult, and I would submit that we have a better chance of walking on water than loving those that hate it and, and or persecute us if we're not filled with the Holy Spirit and if our hearts and mind are not fixed firmly on Christ. In order for us to love like Christ, we must first gaze intently and constantly on the love of Christ. We cannot love like Him if we're not loving Him, if we're not familiar with His love, if we're not studying His love. And again, it's we, we, my family and I, we've talked about it. I said, you know, the Bible doesn't say reach Bibles every day. <laughs> But it says there are the light into our feet and the lamp into our path and our daily bread. And for my wife, I couldn't convince her for a day that I love her if I'd never talked to her. If I didn't want to know how she was, if I didn't want to know more of who she is. It, it's, it's a 66-book Bible, and there's so, we can read it and read something over and see a, see a ripple of God, a, a fingerprint of His character that we've never seen before. And when we see this kind of love, 
it's so convicting to me that I'm, I'm so easily distracted from it. I'm so much like Peter. Like when I say I'm like Peter, I'm like Peter's bad stuff. Like that, just the the, the weak-minded, the the faithless moments of Lord. How do I how do I keep doing the same thing? How do I keep doubting you over and over? So, I submit for us to love like Christ, to love like Stephen. We have to understand Christ's love, and we have to focus on Christ's love. May it be so that God enlarges our view of Him so much that we become so overwhelmed by the glory of God that the offenses that we suffer start to bother us less. I do submit I believe it will be easier for us to do the more we do it. Let me pray for us. Dear God, I thank You for Your Word, Lord. I thank You for Your love, God, that saves. Lord, I thank You that it saves us from the depths of, Lord, our just deadness, Lord. We are callous to you, Lord. We weren't seeking you. We were shaking our fists at you, Lord, in rebellion. You took us by the hand and you unclenched our fists and you made us your sons and daughters in Christ. Amazing love, Lord. Amazing love that you love us, Lord, and you would make us your sons and daughters. I pray that you would let the love of Christ, Lord, transform us from the inside out, Lord, that we would love like you. And Lord, I ask you very honestly and openly, as you teach us, please be gentle with us, Lord. We need patience. We need your patience, that we may be patient with others, Lord. And I pray that you hold on to us, God, because I'm quick to ask for your grace and quick to want to give none to anyone else, Lord. But let your Spirit change me in that way and let me be more like Christ, more like Stephen. And God, just again, please do be gentle with us as you teach us that, but teach us nonetheless, and please be glorified in us more. Lord, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your love. We need it so much, and we thank you for supplying it so freely and abundantly to us. Keep us in your care tonight, Lord. Let us worship you in spirit and truth in our hearts, and let us be lights for you in the world to all those around us. I pray that others would see your love in us. They would see good works in us and give you glory, our Father who is in heaven. Thank you that we can call you Father. We have no claim, no right to call you Father, Lord, apart from the perfect and loving and wonderful work of Christ, and I thank you for that. Thank you that you've adopted us in as sons and daughters because of Christ. Forgive me of my sins, Lord, as I stand here, Lord, even with sin in my heart now, I ask you to forgive me, and I pray that you just... um, Cause each one of us to decrease, that Christ would increase in us more and more to your glory and praise. Let us worship you, Lord, now in all that we do and be with us in the week ahead to be lights for you and love like you. In Christ's name, amen.